For decades, Fudge Hatcher has been a beloved, annoying little brother. Okay, so maybe you just love him because he's not your annoying little brother, but still. Since Judy Bloom's Super Fudge was published in 1980, Fudge and the rest of the Hatcher family have made us laugh and love our own families that much harder. So it's about time we chat about them, don't you think? My guests and I discuss Judy Bloom's always uncanny ability to get into the brain of her young characters, as well as the way she portrays relationships between families and siblings. We spend a lot of time chatting about all of the ways in which we relate to the grown-ups in this book, and identify some interesting hints about the way parenting has evolved over the last four decades. We also swap notes about the Hatcher family's departure from New York City to the suburbs, a journey my guest Caroline made not too long ago. I guess this is as good a time as any to share with you that I'm actually leaving New York City myself, this week appropriately enough. It's a crazy time to be relocating, and I have a lot of feelings about it that I'm sure I'll share at some point. But with all of the stress of coronavirus, we are fast-tracking our previously planned move and heading to Philadelphia in just a few short days. It feels like kismet that it all worked out this way, since I recorded this episode weeks ago. Meet my guest. Caroline Zankan is the author of the novels Local Girls, published in 2015, and We Wish You Luck, which was just published earlier this year. She is a senior editor at Henry Holt, where she acquires and edits literary fiction and memoir. A Brooklyn expat, she recently moved to Maplewood, New Jersey with her husband and two kiddos. Follow Caroline on Instagram at carolinezankan82 and on Twitter at carolinezankan. Thanks so much to Caroline for joining me to talk all things Superfudge. Thanks also to each and every one of you who continue to tune in and support the show through all the ups and downs of this crazy world. It's been so fun chatting with so many of you over on Instagram especially. I love sharing my reading and even some of my life with you there. Follow along at SSRPod. You can find me at SSRPod on Twitter too, and by searching The SSR Podcast on Facebook. If you love what you're hearing, you can really help me spread the word about the show by sharing it on social media. One of my favorite things is seeing episodes tagged on Instagram story. Don't be shy. Take a screenshot of this episode and share it to your story, tagging SSRPod. Let me know there what you're doing while you listen. You can also support the podcast by sharing a five-star rating or review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds to do this, and it goes a long way in spreading the love. If you've already posted a rating or review, consider this a big shout-out. You're a rock star. One more way to support SSR is by coming on board as a Patreon sponsor. Each month, patrons contribute a few dollars to the production of this little passion project of mine, and they get some exclusive rewards in return. Everything from input on book selection and free shipping on merch, to bonus episodes and tote bags. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month. Get all the details at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast, or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. A big thank you goes out to all of the patrons listening right now. I appreciate you so much. Exciting news, listeners. This week's episode is brought to you by the Girl Means Business podcast. Girl Means Business is a weekly show hosted by teacher-turned-entrepreneur Kendra Swalls. On each episode, she and her awesome guests share business and marketing tips, along with some much-needed honest conversations about what it means to be a boss babe balancing a business while raising a family. Some of you probably know that in September of 2016, I left what I was pretty sure was my dream job in book publishing to strike out on my own as a full-time freelance writer, editor, and content manager. I never could have anticipated some of the twists and turns that came with leaving a corporate career and building a network of hustles and passion projects that would ultimately become a profitable, fulfilling work life. And I wish I'd had the Girl Means Business podcast to help me out back then. If you're already an entrepreneur or are dreaming of starting a side hustle, you're going to want to listen to Kendra's show. Check out some of these episode titles, How to Nurture Your Email List, Healthy Habits of Successful Entrepreneurs, Finding Your Business BFF, 
what you really need to start a business, and the list goes on. Trust me, these are all super helpful topics. You can tune into new episodes every Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when new episodes go live. And check out the Girl Means Business Facebook group for bonus materials and more in-depth conversations. Thanks so much to Kendra and the Girl Means Business podcast for sponsoring this episode of SSR. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Caroline. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like we're reuniting with an old friend anytime we talk about Judy Bloom on the podcast. Tell me all about your Judy Bloom history. Were you a fan when you were growing up? Did you love Fudge? Were there others you preferred? I, you know what? When I think of childhood books, Judy Bloom is one of the you know first names that pops up in my head. Truly, I was a super fan, but I could not remember. The first thing about her books, it was all a happy blur, a very, very, very happy blur, but still a blur. So while I was definitely a fan, I didn't remember much, which which made, you know, going back to read it that much more fun. And as I was reading, it did all come back to me. Like, I had definitely read this book as a kid. So... So yes, I was a fan and, and happy to report still a fan. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that ahead of time. So I, every time we cover a Judy Bloom book on the show, I am reminded of how impressively huge her backlist is and how many decades she's been writing these wonderful books for children. I had to remind myself when her first book was published. So her first book came out in 1969. It was called The One in the Middle is the Green Kangaroo. And the book we're talking about today, Super Fudge, was published in 1980. And that was a handful of years after the book that preceded it in this Fudge series, which is called Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. And obviously, as we all know, like she just continued to churn out all of these beloved classics for kids over the years. But this is the first book of hers that I think that we can sort of, I don't know, it's the first one that sort of lives outside of what I sort of cringe to call like the girl book. Like we've done, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. We did Just As Long As We Are Together. I feel like a lot of the other Judy Bloom that we've touched on on SSR has been more in this space of like puberty and girl friendships. And this book is really populated more with young boy characters. So it's sort of a turn in terms of those conversations that we've had about her previously. And she writes boys so convincingly too. It's funny, she inhabits this boy world. I'm a boy, but I am a boy mom. I have a three-year-old boy. Um, And it just, it felt very authentically both young and and boy. She just has such a command of kids' voices in general. And no matter Mm -hmm. which of her books I'm reading, I'm like, oh, like I'm totally buying you as a 13-year-old girl. Now I'm totally buying you as a nine-year-old boy or even in Fudge's case. Like she's not speaking from Fudge's perspective, but 
the dialogue that she writes for Fudge, who's I think four in this book, it feels just like something that a four-year-old would say. So she just has like such a command of the way kids think and the way they speak. And I love that about her. Every time we talk about Mm -hmm. Judy Bloom on the podcast, I feel like I'm just like the biggest Judy Bloom fan. I become her number one devotee every time. Um, And I'll say it again now, like she's just fantastic. Do you remember what, now that you've sort of stepped back into the Judy Bloom world a little bit, do you have any thoughts about maybe which of her books was your favorite when you were a kid? I was definitely an Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret person. Yeah. Do you remember what you loved For about sure. it best? I mean, just that there was like a place to talk about this kind of stuff. It felt like all the taboo conversation tidbits, you know, that when you're a kid, you don't really know how to start these conversations about these things were like all in one place. It just felt like a safe place to talk about unsafe things. I think that's a great way to describe it. And listeners, if you haven't listened to our episode yet about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I'll be sure to include a link to that in the show notes for this episode, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. We got to talk about Super Fudge. I know that I read these books when I was a kid as well. I think I read Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing also. There are a total of five Fudge books, which I didn't know, the most recent of which actually came out in 2002. So she really came back to the Hatcher family over and over again. And as I was researching her process, every time she wrote a Fudge book, she says that she thought that she was done with them. Like she was like, Uh I've said everything I can about Fudge. I've said everything I can about Peter, but kids kept writing into her and asking for more fudge. And so that's why it took her so long to write the series. She had no intention of sort of like churning out book after book after book. She kept Mm -hmm. thinking that she'd like close the story on them. um, And then there was more demand. And I love the fact that that demand came from kids throughout the generations. Totally. Not just that the demands came, but that she answered that demand, that she was like beholden to the fans in that way and, you know, listen to their requests. I think that's really lovely, too. Yeah. And I I would love if we could start our conversation, you know, with that in mind. What do you think is so charming about this family? Like, why do you think kids throughout the decades, starting in the 70s, moving through the 80s, 90s, and then even in the early aughts, why do you think that this family and these characters resonated so much that kids really like took it upon themselves and were proactive about reaching out to this author, that doesn't happen with every author. Yeah, I feel like partly is that it's so honest. I think in a lot of storybooks, you have polite children or there are there's more of a bow that wraps things up in certain places. And this, you know, it captures the naughtiness and the, the fights between siblings and the, the tension between parents and kids in a way that feels really realistic to me, maybe a little bit more realistic and honest than a lot of the children's canon that I'm revisiting uh, just now that I have kids. It just really depicts the texture of what it means to be a family in a way that that captures the love that exists between families, but also, you know, all the sticky bits. I think that's all very true. I certainly realized more of those sticky bits this time around, reading it as Mm -hmm. an adult, especially some of like the adult winks that I thought were going on. And I'm sure we'll get to that as we go throughout this conversation. She really is like talking to parents too, I think, and sort of like Mm -hmm. calling out to them, like, I understand that you're probably dealing with some stuff too and like it's really hard to be a spouse and to be a parent and to like be a breadwinner or and all of those things and to be a caretaker and a caregiver um I feel like she's really empathetic to all of those responsibilities in this book totally I totally agree so I related with the parents this time 
and around, obviously, as a parent myself and just as an adult. And I don't remember the parents being on my radar really at all the first time I was reading, except as like the authority, you know, like yeah. the the people that my people were bouncing up against. Um, I kind of put that them in that category with my own parents. And now I'm like, oh, my God, look, they're people. Um, they have dreams they're putting on hold to raise children and they have books that are going to go unfinished. And, you know, they just felt three dimensional in a way they hadn't before, but of course they were three dimensional the whole time. You just, you know, you glom onto the parts of a book that, you know, speak to your own life. That's probably been one of the most fascinating experiences or elements of putting this podcast together and revisiting all of these books over the last two years. And we talk about it on a lot of episodes, but like you said, when I was a kid reading this book, I, I, the parents felt almost like scenery to me. Like yeah. they were there, they were like making the snacks. They were sometimes like saying no to things that I wanted them right. as a reader to say yes to, but I really wasn't paying any attention to the details that some of these authors include about what's really going on behind the scenes with these parents. Right. So one of my favorite things as an adult coming back to these stories is like really paying attention to what's going on with the parents, if they're married, what's going on in their relationship, if they're single parents, maybe what the pressures of that situation look like. Right. Um, even just like the dynamics of the household as a whole, that's really interesting. And I'm not a parent um, myself, but I do feel like as I've gotten older and you know, some of my friends are having children or even just having had more real conversations with my own parents about their experience parenting me and my siblings, I don't know, I'm resonating with different elements of the story. So that's yeah. been like a very eye-opening part of this whole SSR roller coaster. Totally. I love that. I love that. Um, you should reread them if you do become a parent down the line. I think that's that will be fun to like revisit a third time because, you know, the reality is that having children can be a pressure on a marriage and it's fun to see the way that these parents engage with each other and kind of they're always on the same team when dealing with Peter and Fudge and Tootsie in a way that I almost found inspiring. You know, there's that line in here that's like, oh, mom and dad always end up laughing when they argue. And I was like, oh, their marriage is in good shape. This is great. Um, or, you know, they would exchange private looks. And and but the thing I noticed most of all is that they were, you know, if one parent said no or yes to a thing, then like that was that was it. That was the rule. Um, so I almost by the end was like looking to these parents for like parenting wisdom. You know, it was like they seem to have this figured out. Like, how would they handle this? I was happy to know that I was going to be talking with you, who I know is a parent about this book because I had a lot of notes in my margins of this book. Like I was having a lot of mixed feelings about the parents just because I was sort of wondering like, why are they making this choice? Like, I feel like there are a lot of really deliberate descriptions of like their parenting decisions. Right. And because I'm not a parent myself, I don't really know if those choices are like quote unquote good or quote unquote bad. And I know there's so much talk, especially right now about like mom shaming or parent shaming and the judgment that parents today get just from like showing up on social media or even like sharing with their friends yeah. what they're going through. And I, I would imagine that you feel that to some extent. And so I kept having to stop myself and I was like, you might be having like some weird icky judgment about it, but you don't even know what you're talking about because you don't have kids. And even if you did have <laughs> kids, like it's their right to decide. Like I had a very weird reaction right. to the situation where Fudge, um, he was regressing in a lot of ways after their baby sister Tootsie was born. And right. one of the ways was that he wanted to sleep in bed with his parents. They had also just moved to this new big house and it was a new environment. The parents are like, no, you're, you're going to have to stay in your bed. But he takes it upon himself to just like completely do his own thing. He sets up his sleeping bag right outside their door every night and he just like sleeps yeah. there, which I think most kids have done at some point. But Judy Bloom really makes a point to like write a full paragraph or two about how their parents 
don't say anything about it. Every morning they just wake up and they like step right. over him and they go about their day. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I would have thought about any of these things, but I do feel like Judy Bloom like is calling attention to a lot of their choices. Their so choices. I, as somebody who's not a parent, was like, is there a reason that she's calling attention to their choices? Like, I, I just wasn't really sure what that was about. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I think that so many of the choices that the parents make were much more standard back then than they are now. Like we're living in the age of helicopter parenting where you don't let your kids. A lot of people would never dream of like letting their kids ride their bikes to school and back without any supervision. Like there's the scene, you know, when Fudge goes missing and Peter and his friend Alex come home and the mom's like, oh, I just assumed Fudge was with you. And like that just wouldn't happen today. And so many communities because like moms and dads are just always constantly aware of where their children are. They're like always in sight. They're always, or, you know, the nanny or it's direct drop off from child to daycare. And I feel like in a lot of ways that the depiction in here was so much more reminiscent of my childhood than my own kids' uh, childhoods. I mean, my kids are only three and 18 months. So, you know, they're way too young to be riding their bikes out and about anyway. Um, But it did just seem like a time, it was a depiction of a time when you know, parents were just a little bit more lax and did, you know, send their kids out to play and called them in at dusk for dinner. And I think that that's gone way out of vogue. And I'm curious what Judy Bloom would think of those decisions that are in the book now. And now is, you know, if she would dismiss the helicopter parenting that we see so much of today and the attachment parenting um, and just more hands-on approach to raising your children that we see again and again. Or if, you know, she would say, you know, we should go back to doing it the way that, that this family did it. Or if, you know, it's just a scarier world that we live in. But I do think that a lot of moms who read this now um, would be surprised at a lot of the choices, the parenting choices that are made, where back then I don't think a lot of parents would have thought twice about it. I will say, like, I, I thought the marriage was in great shape between the, the mom and dad here. But there were times where I was like, ooh, I can't believe you left the the baby alone long enough for Fudge to do what he did and like hide hide baby Tootsie. So I I, w- I definitely waded into some judgments myself, but I do think that it was probably more standard back then. Yeah, it it seemed to me too that they had a lot of independence. The kids had a lot of independence both when they were living in New York City and then even more when they moved to Princeton. So listeners, if you haven't read the book in a long time, which I assume many of you haven't, the Hatcher family starts off living in New York City and Caroline, having taken a peek at your bio, I know that you you still live in Brooklyn and then it sounds like you recently moved your family to Maplewood, New Jersey, which I've heard is charming. That's right. By the way. It's so charming. It's so close to, it's kind of still commuting into the city. Yeah, I know a few people who have made that exact move and have been very happy with it. I thought that you might resonate with some of that content in this book as well. So another reason that you're the perfect guest for this book. So (laughs) they have this third child, Tootsie. Um, They now have Peter, who is in sixth grade in this book, and then Fudge, who is four. Tootsie is born and is, of course, a very little baby, but they're running out of space in the apartment, as many families in New York do. Um, And so they find their way out to Princeton. And I, I thought that it was kind of interesting to watch how not only the kids were adapting to life outside of New York, but also how the parents were adapting. And it was almost like they moved to the suburbs and it was like, let loose the kids out into the world. But I guess if you're used to not having a lot of space and to like feeling cramped and on top of each other and suddenly your kids can ride their bikes to school, especially in a time when like that was a little bit more commonplace, that would probably feel really good. 
I did, it's so funny when I got to the Jersey part of this book, I was like, oh my gosh, how funny. Uh, it totally resonated. And it not only, I mean, it resonated even before there was the scene where they're like, when they find out they're having a third baby and they live in this apartment, they're like, we'll put her in the dining room. We'll put her in the dining area. That'll be her nursery. Um, because my second child, Mirabelle, was in our pa- pack and play at the foot of our bedroom for like a year in Brooklyn uh, before we moved to New Jersey um, because we just weren't ready to leave our home. We had been in Brooklyn for 14 years. We'd both come to Brooklyn from the Midwest. And it felt like, oh, if we're leaving Brooklyn, we might as well just, you know, move back home. So really committing to this, you know, to the suburbs took a really long time. Uh, But I did feel a lot of the freedoms that they um, enjoy in the book when they get to New Jersey. And it's funny because at the very end of this book, not to spoil anything, they moved back to New York. And I was like, oh, no, you guys are going back. Like, take me, take me with you. What? Uh, You're like, I wanted you to confirm that the suburbs are cool. Yeah, exactly. like, wait, you guys tried both things on and you picked New York? Um, that was a funny moment. Although, you know, as I speak to you, I'm speaking to you from a skyscraper in, in, you know, New York City. So I still got my fill of the city. I mean, it's not really a skyscraper, but I'm on the 23rd floor right now. So pretty high, pretty urban. So I still get my fill of the city, but it was funny to like see them make that reverse commute and my heart leapt a little bit. Well, I too am on the 23rd floor of a building right now. So that's uh, weird. Are you in New York? Uh, yeah, I live in Brooklyn. Um, I live in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm, I live on the 23rd floor of a building in Brooklyn. But we actually are moving out pretty shortly. And so that's been hard, as you know, like the emotional ups and downs of making the decision to leave New York. And like, I have these feelings sometimes that I'm like quitting on it. I've been here eight years, but yeah, that's it's a hard decision to make. Um, it is. And we had like just put that news out there a couple of days before I started reading this book. And similarly, when I got to the last page, I had this nostalgic pull of like, oh, good, they're going back to New York and the family is so excited. And I had this like reminder of the magic that New York will always hold. But I also was like, it would have been really great if you decided that other places were awesome too. Great too. (laughs) I know, totally. Well, you know, at the end of Broad City, they, they leave New York for other places. So, you know, if you need to watch something now to reconfirm that choice. That helped me. I don't know. Maybe that'll help you. Um, Also, though, New York, let the book be a reminder to you that New York is always there. You know, they say it's you never return to New York once you leave because it is such a, you know, tough place to get set up. But I don't think that's true. I already know some people who like went to the suburbs to raise their kids and and then, you know, are retiring back into the city. So, you know, never say never. It's always, the city's always here for you. Yeah, my friends keep sending me titles of books and movies and TV shows that I shouldn't watch because they think yeah. <laughs> it's going to get me too emotional. They're like, by no means should you read Goodbye to All That before you Oh my gosh. Move. They're totally like, you up. will never leave. So I have a couple of things that are currently forbidden until I'm successfully moved so, out. I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, Unless you want to lean into it, you know, because maybe you need to like feel all the feels and feel them through and then, you know, be, be over it, not over it. You're never over a great love, which I'm sure your love for New York is, but you know, at some point you have to give in to the, to the feels. Yeah. There will come a day when I think you'll be able to find me in my new place in Philadelphia, like crying while I read goodbye Uh to all of that and drinking rosé and eating ice cream out of the carton. And (laughs) then I'll be able to move on. Maybe we'll see. Uh, Change is hard. Change is really hard. (laughs) Change is really hard, but also let the record show 
show that the, the essay that we're talking about right now, Goodbye to All That, is by Joan Didion, who is now considered like the ultimate New York writer. She still lives in New York City. And that essay was about her leaving New York for, for her home state of California. But even she came back. So maybe there, there are second acts to be had in, in New York City. Yeah, you never know. But I, I thought that this book, it was interesting that it resonated with me so much, even though I'm a 30-year-old woman, um, because it's really about change. There's so much about mm-hmm. weathering change in this book, what it means to weather change when you're a kid, what it means to weather change as an adult. I mean, we're not inside the heads of Peter's parents, but we kind of observe them managing all of the changes that their family is going through in their own ways. And then we step back and we see how the family as a whole is weathering the change that they're that they're experiencing. So there's a new baby that comes into the family, first of all. Then they move. And on top of the move, which is always a scary thing for kids, Peter doesn't even know if the move is going to be permanent, which I thought was, was an interesting touch and one that I haven't seen a lot. Because of course, in Kidlet, there's so many stories of like being the new kid. And so we've seen that time and time again on SSR. But I would say that Peter is the first kid who's gone into a new school, not really being sure if he's going to stay. Um, And I thought that was like an added layer that for me as a kid, like maybe would have made me feel anxious because I'd be like, am I supposed to be putting down roots here? Like, am I supposed to make friends? Should I still be best friends with the people I was best friends with in my old school? Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that that was kind of a unique touch on Judy Bloom's part. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. Also, the other thing is like a year to a kid is like forever. You know, it's funny because even though they do end up going back to the city and it's just one full school year, like that is that may as well be forever. But I did think that that was that added some nice tension. It also like kind of kept me reading because I knew, you know, I I was hoping they would resolve it by the end just as a reader, you know, if they were if they were going to plant roots here or not. So I thought it was a good touch too in that it, it kept, you know, I always say as a writer, one good piece of advice is to like ask a question um, and make the reader keep reading to know the answer. And so I definitely wanted that question answered. I think that it's funny to watch how Peter, whenever there he's confronted with a cha- change or uncertainty, he kind of like throws a little bit of a temper tantrum, but it sometimes isn't even directly related to the change. He can't voice it that way. And I, I kind of laughed because I was like, adults kind of do this too. Like when we're confronted with something scary or new, we kind of like act out sometimes indirectly in this way. And it's it's funny, the things that change from childhood to adulthood, but also the things that don't. And I think part of, I'm sure part of that acting out was, was him not knowing, you know, if this was forever or not. Yeah, I related to him in a lot of ways. I'm the oldest sibling in my family. Um, so right off the bat, when he was kind of like, listing the woes of of what it's like to be the oldest especially when you're a kid and like how you feel like attention is being taken away from you and how every time a new member is added to the family you get afraid that it's going to change the dynamic and no matter how much you love your siblings when you're a kid that can be hard but on top of that I also uh, am a bit of a control freak and I don't always (laughs) handle change very well and I sense that in Peter like he was very resistant to change he also really wanted to be seen as mature by his parents like he really really wanted to be taken seriously. And that mirrors my own experience a lot because I'm six years older, as listeners have heard me say time and time again, than my next sibling. And so like Peter, I think that I had moments when I was growing up where like I maybe overstepped and like thought that I could sort of help my parents like make decisions about like how my sister should be punished or like if she was doing the right thing or the wrong thing and my parents were always very deliberate about being like no like you're not in charge of reprimanding her you know you let us handle it you just tell us what's going on and then we'll go from there but I think that we just as kids sometimes have a tendency and like a natural urge to like 
want people to see us as older. And when you have a younger Mm -hmm. sibling, it's almost like this golden opportunity to show that you're like so grown up and that you're so wise and you can show your parents like that you can help them make good decisions. So all of those things felt very real to me about Peter. Yes. I also like loved that beautiful moment at the end of the book where they do take his advice on a punishment. It's like, you know, he's not always at the adult table, but like there are these moments where his wisdom shines through, you know, not only that moment, but the moment that, you know, his parents are unavailable when Fudge is having a temper tantrum in his new classroom. So they call in Peter. So it's like no one's making him the boss of anything, but, you know, his voice is heard now and then, which is nice. I was glad for him during those moments when, you know, people really saw and heard him. But it's funny, too, because, like, the gap between, you know, my kids are two years apart, and that gap doesn't seem that significant um, to me at all. I'm like, yeah, you're both kids, but, like, to Louis, two years, Louis, my oldest, two years is, like, so completely uh, long a stretch that, you know, he feels like there's so many things Mirabel doesn't know that he needs to, like, enlighten her with. So it's funny. It is funny to watch yeah he's like I'm the adult here (laughs) yeah exactly he's like this is how you do this and this is how you do that and I'm like you learned that last week literally but you know he's so proud to know it and to share it yeah and someday when he's like 27 and they're like oh 25 it's like (laughs) who cares about two years but right now he's like a world away from her (laughs) totally So let's talk a little bit about the first big change that the family goes through and how that's handled and depicted. So within the first page or two of the book, Peter's parents share that they are going to be having another baby. And I really liked the way that Judy Bloom depicted this. I thought that it was very real. Uh, Peter's sort of first instinct is like, why didn't you guys tell me earlier? (laughs) Which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, He's clearly pretty smart. Like he understands when his mom tells him that she's four months pregnant that like, oh, well, that means that there are four other months that you've known about this and you haven't told me. Like, he's very in tune with all of that. And his, like, second thought is, oh, no, we're going to have another Fudge because Fudge (laughs) is his brother who's four years younger. And Fudge has been, like, quite a handful to his whole family. Um, All the neighbors know that he's a huge handful. I think we get a lot of that in Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, which I have not read in a while. But um, when we meet this family again in Super Fudge, we don't know a lot of the details about Fudge's behavior right off the bat. So we sort of just have to take Peter's word for it that like things are a little crazy. Um, And he even goes so far as to like pretend that he's going to pack a bag. He's like, I'm going to my friends. And I really like the fact that his parents just like didn't react. His mom was sort of just asking him very rational questions like, oh, well, like, do you know if they're home? <laughs> he was, like, yeah. threatening to go to it's his friend Jenny's house. going to be over there. Right. She was one like, bedroom. Right. She was, like, talking him through all these, like, very realistic considerations of, like, well, do they have room? Like, does he know that you're coming? Should you call? And I loved moments like that with his parents throughout the book, even though I, like, at moments was a little bit confused about what they were doing. But it seemed like they really were trying to, like, teach him how to have very adult, simple conversations. Um, and so I liked that they just were like, okay, we're not going to give you the reaction that you're looking for. Yeah. If you want to talk about it reasonably, sure. But like, we're not going to like try to beg you to stay. Also, Jimmy probably lives like a couple of blocks away and they can yeah. go get him when they right. need to. Also, I feel like it, kids sometimes it's a poker game. So like you showing any emotions, like raising them emotion, if they like take it to a level two and you meet there too, they're like, okay, now I'm going to take it to a level four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, know, if you meet their four, they're going to take it to a six and on and on and on. So I think that they kind of like don't, you know, they, they don't raise to meet his emotional tenor, which I think is smart. I think that's smart parenting. I also think that's, you know, it's a little bit what we were talking about earlier, how they're just a very, there's a lot of candor here. Like it's, it's a pretty realistic depiction. And there's even with the way that the parents present 
the idea of children and having children. It's like very frank and honest. And it's not, you know, there is no stork at some point. You know, the grandma's like, why didn't you just tell them the stork version of the story? You know, they tell them like where children really come from. And I felt like that was that was funny to watch. Like I got a chuckle out of that because they it is just kind of like, you know, they tell it like it is to these kids in a way that I, you know, got a kick out of. Yeah, they pull out the Where Do Babies Come From book for Fudge, who, as we said, is only four. And he hilariously becomes obsessed with the whole idea. There's like several pages devoted to Peter sort of rehashing how enthusiastically Fudge takes all of this information in. Um, he goes to school and he's like telling everybody about it and the teachers are like, great, like let's read the book. And then they actually invite his mom to come in and answer questions because <laughs> the classmates have so many questions about what they learned in Fudge's book. I wonder if that's another example of what we were talking about before with there just being sort of a different tone to the way parents relate to kids now. I feel like today, totally. like that would have caused a major uproar like other parents would have been so pissed because oh totally and the curriculum to anything needs to be approved by like seven different levels of authority and there are scripts and you can't stray from the scripts and you know on the one hand I get why that's necessary in you know in the society and the culture that we're living in right now but at the same time it kind of keeps adults from being nimble and keeping on their feet and reacting when a child has a question because children aren't going to stay on script like you can have your script as laminated as you want um but at the end of the day, the kids are going to say what they want to want to say, as Fudge says again and again and again at so many different wonderful moments. And I think back then there was more freedom to kind of go with that and just, you know, meet a kid head on and say, oh, this is what you specifically need right now. Like, this is what you're wondering. This is where your head is. Like, let you let me meet you on, on that level. And there's kind of like no more of that anymore. So that was an interesting thing to see. I think it also just sort of spoke to maybe the more like liberal mindset, especially like in a community like Princeton or New York City in the 70s, like maybe people weren't as nervous about talking about sex, even to preschoolers or talking about where babies come from. Things I think are more conservative now Mm -hmm. in a lot of places, certainly, and just sort of like the sensibility of schools and educators um, has sort of pulled back in terms of like how open they can be. So that was Mm -hmm. worth noting. I also picked this out as the first scenario in which we see that like Fudge somehow always manages to land on his feet, um, like no matter what he does. And when I was thinking about this whole scenario through Peter's eyes, I, I was like, this must be so embarrassing for him to know that his brother is walking around talking about where babies come from. He's probably going to get in trouble because like, how ridiculous can you be to think that that's cool school conversation? Um, you know, I was trying to think about it through Peter's like big brother eyes right. and nope, that's not at all what happens. And of course yeah. I'm seeing it through like my 2020 lens or through my experience of growing up in the nineties. Like even then that wouldn't have been cool, but no, like the teachers really reward fudge for his precociousness and for his curiosity and they like actually sort of like build a whole day around the questions that he's asking and the questions that he's encouraging his classmates to ask um so when that happened I was like okay like it sort of seems like fudge can do no wrong Right, 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 right. That's funny. I think that's really true. Even, you know, the scene at the end when there's, he's called on stage by the famous author and he, you know, kind of inadvertently is making fun of the principal. I was like, oh, disrespecting a teacher like this. Now he's really done it. And it was toward the end of the book. So I kind of felt like Fudge's time had finally come. Yeah. Um, and then like, once again, Fudge is, you know, he gets the big laugh and everyone's okay with it. And the teacher just, you know, the, he, he has a famous author draw this cartoon that ends up having uh, an 
uncanny likeness to the principal. Uh, and the principal's fine with it and, like, asks him to sign it, uh, asks the author to sign it, um, which, again, was, did not go where I was expecting it to go. And it kind of is just like, you know, fudge, is, fudge always, as you said, just lands on his feet in a way that didn't seem sustainable forever, but it, but it was. Yeah, it kept going. And Peter's feelings toward fudge were as nuanced as I would have liked them to be. I was nervous yeah. at the beginning, just the way that he was reacting to the news that his parents were having another baby and how frustrated he was about like the responsibility of being a big brother to such sort of an unruly little brother. I was like, oh, this whole book, he's going to just sort of be rolling his eyes at Fudge and be frustrated at him and angry at him. But I think it's much more complicated than that. And I think that's very true to a lot of sibling relationships, especially Mm -hmm. for young kids. It's definitely not all or nothing. Like Peter has his moments with Fudge where he can't deal with him and he just needs space and he's like you're so embarrassing but he also has plenty of moments of just kind of like naturally stepping in and taking on responsibilities with him he volunteers to help him learn to ride a bike which is like a big deal I mean I think it's kind of hard to teach someone to ride a bike I certainly had a lot of trouble learning to ride one and it's not calculated in any way like we don't see any sort of mental gymnastics with him coming to terms with like his responsibility as an older brother like he's not coming to some big decision about how he's going to change his attitude toward fudge there's no like transition moment where he decides that he's going to stop being so mad at him and instead like embrace him it's just sort of like the natural day in and day out roller coaster ride that comes with sharing close quarters with somebody as a member of their family and I appreciated that nuance yeah absolutely I mean I think you're a sibling maybe this is true for the way you grew up as well but for the Zancan siblings I had an older uh, I have an older sister and a younger brother and it was like no name was like off limits we would be so mean to each other and you know we would wrestle and we would like really get into it and we would have alliances against each other and just the whole works but like God help anyone on the outside who who would like come for any one of us. Then we were like such a unit. It's like I can I can call my brother or sister anything I want, but like you can't. They're with me, um, you know. And it seemed a little bit of that was happening here, and that like he didn't he didn't he didn't want Fudge to come with him on the picnic. Like it was an absolute no. Like Fudge can scream all he wants. I don't care. And then as soon as Fudge is like in any sort of even potential peril, it's like he's leading the charge to like go find him. That certainly struck a chord with me as a sibling and it made me think that maybe Judy Bloom was herself a sibling but uh, it did feel very nuanced and very realistic. Yeah and also the scene where Peter gets called down to the principal's office because it's the first day of school and Fudge is having a tantrum in his kindergarten classroom because his teacher won't call him Fudge and Peter goes to kind of like see what was going on and Fudge is like climbing on these cabinets he's like completely going crazy in the classroom and the teacher is going on and on talking about how he like completely beyond help basically and how like he has to be out of the classroom and he can't tolerate him as a student and Peter gets really defensive and at this point we haven't really caught that many nuances of their relationship yet like I would say at that time in the book Peter was definitely leaning toward more annoyed than like Mm -hmm. loving toward his brother Um, and so I starred that scene as a moment when I was like okay like Peter can be annoyed by his brother and Peter can think that his brother is totally out of control but Nobody else can say that because then Peter's going to defend him. And I really liked that we saw that. And especially involving an adult. Like, it's it's hard as a kid to sort of stand up to an adult and to believe that an adult might be wrong. And Peter does that because he is just so defensive of his brother. 
Yeah, it's definitely the unified front factor that was really sweet. I also kind of thought it was funny that they listened to Peter as any sort of authority. You know, the parents yeah. weren't available. So they're like, all right, you'll serve as like the authority uh, voice from the family, uh, which was funny because, you know, that it was kind of like Peter's dream for so long to be the boss. But then he doesn't ultimately like side with the other adults. He sides with Fudge, which I thought was really sweet. Yeah, but also things that would probably, like, never happen in real life. Like, yeah. I don't oh, think yeah. the I situation think then. is so urgent that, like, oh, we have to go get his older brother out of his classroom. Like, we can't get a hold of his parents right now, so we're just going to go get, like, the 10-year-old <laughs> from down the hall, and he'll tell us what to do, even I'm, though we're, like, highly yeah. trained educators who totally. know how to deal with kids. I think a lot of stuff like that where I was like, oh, wow, things have changed a lot from then to now. I, I bet even back then they wouldn't have done that. That was the one place where I was like, that might not be a, something that hasn't age well, but just maybe a, a plot convenience. But I liked it either way. Yeah, I did too. It was a fun scene. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about the parents, starting with a very honest, subtle moment that we get with Peter's mom early in the book. And since you're a mom, I, I would love to know what you thought about this moment. And you might already know what I'm talking about. But shortly after Tootsie is born, and things are just in total chaos. I mean, Fudge is still running around being himself, which is a lot to handle. And Peter is like doing his best to integrate into his new role in the family. And they're planning this move. And there's just a lot going on. And Peter comes home one day and his mom is just like sitting there crying. Um, I think she's holding the baby in the moment. And there's just this sense of exhaustion and being totally overwhelmed. And Peter was like, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have had another baby, Mm -hmm. uh, which was so cold. And like, obviously I'm sure she's gone there herself mentally at that moment, but I've never read a kid's book that depicted exactly that kind of moment before. And I thought that was great. And it really fits in well with a lot of conversations that I think mom communities are having now about like vulnerability and even on social media the moms that I follow have recently really started opening up about like how hard it is especially when you have a newborn and you're trying to like keep up with other areas of your life as well and there's like just this movement I think toward honesty about what that Mm -hmm. period of parenting actually looks like so I thought Judy Bloom is very ahead of her time in including that in this book in being so honest about it. Yeah, totally. It's funny too, because when I think about that moment, my first question was like, where's dad? Like mm. my, my husband and I, when we had kids were determined to like really make sure it was a 50, 50, like we both have full-time jobs. We both have careers we're super invested in and have put a lot of time into up and in, you know, we, up until now, it's not like we are new to our careers. We've really invested in them in time capital. So when I would, you know, inevitably these moments come when you're exhausted and you're at the end of your rope but the key is just having them at different times so like when I would be like you know what I need to walk around the block I felt completely fine with leaving them both in Ben's care and just like going to get an iced coffee at the corner bodega and like going on a 20 minute walk to my Spotify playlist you know it did it didn't feel like it felt totally on me and then you know Ben would have his breaking moments and I would be you know captaining the ship so it's funny because I do think that this couple has a a pretty progressive for the time breakdown of duties and work in that, you know, she goes back to work for a bit in Princeton so he can write his book. But it did seem in that in that baby moment that she was the one kind of ruling over the the baby logistics. Yeah, and that was definitely a moment that I'm sure as a kid that I didn't flag at all. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm sure I just read right past it and was like, okay, what's Fudge gonna do next? But as an adult who's like moving into that phase where a lot of my friends have 
newborns. We actually have friends who had a baby four days ago. And, you know, I was like imagining my friend probably going through similar feelings. and, (laughs) And I just, those things register with me at a different level now than when I was a kid and and that's how it's meant to be and I'm sure Judy Mm -hmm. Bloom imagined when she was writing these books that someday parents would probably be reading these books aloud to their kids and um, Mm. I can only guess that it's more enjoyable for parents to read chapter books aloud to their kids when there are a few like subtle winks to them or like moments that are intended for only them to understand Um, Mm -hmm. and I think Judy Bloom is sort of the master of that at least in this book. Yeah absolutely yeah I agree with you totally I not only appreciated the the wink, the parent, you know, the parent wink. But I also felt in that moment, like I just wanted to give Peter's mom a hug and be like, it's going to get better. It's fine. Like I really, it made me consider her as a real character. It wasn't just like a thing that resonated with me and made me think that Judy Bloom was talking to me as well, but it it made the mom feel like somebody um, who I might want to hang out with. And it just made her seem like an actual person. I also just love any time we see in a kid's book that parents are fallible and like the more direct that can be communicated the better I think sometimes authors do it really subtly like maybe a parent just answers a question wrong or like maybe gives a character a sort of bad piece of advice but I think it's really healthy for kids to see that like parents sometimes mess up sometimes they have bad days they don't always know the answers and sometimes they're like just fucking tired (laughs) Um, and that's what we see in this book and yeah not only that but like the parents kind of are okay with their fallibility they're not trying to like hide it either it's not like they're like well, you know, because I'm doing this, this is what we do. And this is the right thing to do. Like they, they kind of are lovely people and that they kind of accept their own limits and are aware of them. And they, you know, they're people and they understand that they're only people and are going to have their missteps. So I, I kind of like the way that they shared these moments, these hard moments with their kids in a way that, you know, felt like there were still boundaries in place, but they were, there was an honesty there again, that, that resonated. And I guess we kind of see that again later in the book when Peter's dad's attempts to write a book don't go so well. So the context of them moving to Princeton is that their dad, who seems to be like a pretty big wig at an advertising agency in Manhattan, decides that he's going to write a book about the history of advertising. So he takes a leave um, and that's part of what they're going to do, which like makes a lot of sense. This is a thing that you hear about that I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to like go to a house somewhere and write a book. In this case, he just happens to have three kids. But That just doesn't seem like a very peaceful place to write a book. I don't know. But that's his plan. And over the course of the book, Judy Bloom sort of plants these seeds that it's maybe not going so well. Like Peter observes, like, I don't really see dad working on his book very much, but like he's taking a Chinese cooking class and like he's making meals for us all the time, which to your point earlier is very progressive. And I think in the 70s, the fact that Judy Bloom is so obviously making it clear that like this is a family in which Mm -hmm. mom is taking on certain responsibilities of working outside the home to support dad who has this passion project that he's working on. And in turn, dad is taking on some more responsibilities around the home that may more traditionally have been allotted to the mom. Um, So I like that they sort of take on those natural, like a fluctuation of how they're contributing to the house. Mm -hmm. But by the end of the book, it becomes very clear that their dad is like, "Mm, I actually can't write a book. And he admits that to the family. (laughs) And there were a lot of things I liked about that. I liked that he was so honest and straightforward and basically saying like, this is a thing that I tried and it didn't work out, but it's okay. Like sometimes that happens. And I think that's a good model for kids. But I also liked that in this time when I'm sure there was a lot of pressure to sort of be like a traditional sort of breadwinner, their dad's like, you know what? I'm going to try to write a book. Like that would be pretty cool. I don't know how much kids in the seventies were seeing that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that not only is it great that he tried, 
and not only is it great that when he fails, he's honest about it. And, you know, there is a plan B. Like, it's not like they're like, the book didn't work. Now what are we going to do? Like, he failed. And not only did that happen, but it's okay that it happened. But I also thought it was really honest on Judy Bloom's part. Because, again, so many books, and so many books, especially books for children, it goes, you set a goal, and then you achieve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book is, like, how you got there. And that, of course, is not always how things work out in life. And, you know, as someone who works in publishing and as a writer myself, I can tell you that for every published book, there are 500 times as many unpublished books or books that never even reached completion. Um, So it just felt like a really honest, realistic touch. Good job, Judy Bloom. This book also has some interesting like working mom kind of content. And I'd love for you to speak to that a little bit if you're comfortable, because there's, as you mentioned, there's you know, a lot of conversation about Peter's mom going back to work while their dad is working on his book. And originally she'd actually been talking about going back to school. She wants to study art history, which I love. Um, And then when they're in Princeton and it's clear that maybe they need to be making some more money, um, she just decides to go back to her old work in um, dental assistant work or maybe dental hygiene. Um, So she goes back and gets a part-time job at a local dentist's office. And she has this pretty frank conversation with Peter where Peter's like, oh, I thought that you were going to go back to school. And she's like, oh, well, I have to be practical right now. Um, And that's not a thing that is discussed all that much in kids' books, like the practicalities of earning money to Mm -hmm. feed your family. Um, And I will say, like, as an adult, I was picking up on these little clues where I was like, it seems like maybe their parents are having some financial stress and maybe it's even putting a strain on their relationship. And so I was happy in the end that it seemed like everything was okay. But I was noticing those details. And and I like that Judy Bloom addressed these questions that working moms have to deal with, um, again, Mm -hmm. in, like, such a direct way. I feel like I keep saying she did this in a direct way, she did this in a direct way, but that's really what she's doing with a lot of Mm -hmm. these subjects. And I think it needs to be direct because, you know, kids aren't as good with subtext as we are, right? So, like, for it to register for a child at all, it needs to be pretty direct. So I think that she handled it with just the, you know, just the right amount of subtlety. I, you know, my heart broke for the mom so many times in this book, not only that moment where she had her her breakdown early on, or not breakdown, she's just in tears, um, but also, you know, how many times she delays the things she wants. But my heart leapt for her at the end, too when she, it sounds like she's going to finally get her classes at NYU. And again, I think that it's a realistic depiction so that kids understand that, you know, dreams are great, but we all, you know, they have to kind of interact and be in conversation with reality all the time. And just because a dream doesn't happen the way that it does in a movie or a book uh, in a more traditional sense, you know, the narratives we see time and again, it doesn't mean that it can't happen and that, you know, things can't happen on their own time. So I thought it was inspiring in a way that surprised me, you know, that she got there, but on her own time, uh, because, you know, having kids does definitely delay. It doesn't, there's, I don't think there's anything you can't do after you have kids, but it does change what kind of timeline is realistic. So I appreciated that that was, to me, that was what the takeaway was, was overall was not that she wasn't going to do it, but that it was going to take a little longer. And I think that that's, that's a very true and fair takeaway about parenting. And in my head, at least Peter grows up as a result of all of this to be the kind of man who is like very in touch with, you know, if he is in relationships with women with like being very open to like the dreams that they want to pursue to maybe sort of reorienting his own life to like create space for them to do that. If he's in partnership with a woman, um, I see him just being like very sensitive to other people's needs, women and men. Mm -hmm. 
And I feel like, you know, he's just growing up to be more of a considerate person because he's having these honest conversations with his parents at such a young age. Right. Totally. And also probably open, more open to what is possible in that, you know, like maybe even if it's just an idea, it's worth quitting your job to go write a book, you know, even if that book never comes, like maybe you give yourself space to try things out, even if they don't, even if they don't come into being, it doesn't mean that the year was wasted. We had this whole year of adventure, um, even though no book came from it. It seems like, you know, it's that old cliche, like it's the journey that matters, not the destination. Um, and that seems like so true here, but in a, again, in a very realistic way, it's like what mattered was, was all that these kids got into and the experiences they had, not the book that never manifests at the end. I did want to call out one element of this book that people seem to have taken issue with before we start to wrap up. There's not a lot out there about this book, actually. I'm always looking for think pieces that identify either something that was life-changing about a kid's book for a now adult or for think pieces that identify major problems with kids' books from days gone by. There's not a ton out there about Super Fudge, but people, even today, are very upset about the Santa thing. Oh my gosh. People (laughs) are worked up. There was an article on Refinery29 in 2013, and it starts like this. There are a lot of things that merit outrage. Judy Bloom's 1980 kids book, Super Fudge, is not one of them, or so I thought. A few weeks ago, just in time for the holiday season, I discovered an angry mob of Amazon reviewers have flocked to the Super Fudge page to warn of the dangers of Chapter 10, entitled Santa Who. Thanks for ruining Christmas, Judy Bloom, That's one reviewer's headline. Um, And some of the other review headlines that this piece calls out are anti-children, no Santa, are you crazy? Awful. (laughs) They're just all of these people like talking about how Judy Bloom in this book basically like tells the truth to their kids about the fact that Santa isn't real. Um, and obviously like a lot of these parents didn't know that they were getting into that when they gave this book to their kids. I found another so essay funny. by a mom who talks about the fact that like her kids read this book and then they went and like told all of their friends that Santa isn't real because they found out in Super Fudge. And so like this obviously isn't something that I would have thought of actively because I'm not a parent, but Now that I think about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, like this is a pretty frank conversation that Peter and Fudge have where Fudge is like, oh, no, like I've known forever that Santa isn't real, but I've just been faking it. And that could be kind of traumatic for a kid who's young enough to like fully buy into the Santa thing. Like that totally is a shock. Totally. I had never loved Fudge more than in that scene when he's like, oh, no, I knew I'm faking. But I totally it's so funny because the Amazon on the one hand, the Amazon reviewer things like that is the most Amazon reviewer thing ever to like glom onto about this book when it's like one part of, of the book and right. it's very small and it's like so funny the the things that an angry mob will grab onto but that said I was like oh wow um he's only four like I maybe I'm a late bloomer but I believed in Santa Claus until at least 10 or 12 which again I know I err on the later side but I definitely um there are a few four-year-olds in my orbit and they definitely still believe in Santa Claus I don't think they're faking I think it's real so I can understand how I I was a little bit like, oh, wow, that's that seems early. That feels early. Um, but at the same time, don't give your kids a book that you haven't read or don't know the contents of. I, I would also say that, you know, like there are a million videos out there these days um, that kids love to watch. And like my one policy is like, I'm, I'm not going to show it to you unless I've seen it. And I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb for a book, too. So to the angry mobsters, maybe just keep, keep better tab on what your kids are reading. I don't know. Yeah. So parents, if you're listening and you have kids that still believe in Santa and you want to keep it that way, 
maybe don't give them super fudge quite yet, although I think it is a fun read for them in the future. On that note, Caroline, on the whole, has coming back to super fudge as an adult held up and sort of been reminiscent of your experience reading it as a kid, or has it disappointed you in some way? I absolutely love this experience of coming back to this book. It really did, it brought back so many memories, not only of reading the book, but just that time in my life. Like my mom used to take my siblings and I to the bookstore and we would each get to pick out one book and we would, there would be trips to the library where we'd each get our giant stacks and we'd sit them on our couch and we'd all be sitting next to our giant stacks and there would be room on the couch for all three of us and three stacks of books. Uh, Um, And it just bought, (laughs) and it just bought me back to that in a way that was really lovely. Um, I was also, you know, as we've been talking about throughout, just loved the parent winks. And, you know, as it feels so often in in this day and age, like the sky is falling um, and you need a break from the news. I can't think of a better break from the news than this book. It was, you know, I read it over the, you know, on my commute the past few days. Um, That's when I did my reading. And it just made me land both at work and at home in such a good mood, ready for the day, and just in good spirits because I had read it. So I recommend it to anybody who wants to revisit this, uh, but also for anybody who needs a little bit of a mood lifter or a little bit of break from the news cycle because it is a a good dose of cheer. That's an excellent endorsement, and I agree. Um, Other than Super Fudge, Caroline, what have you been reading and loving lately that you might recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be YA. It can be YA. Anything that you've just especially been enjoying. I have been just recently, just before I turned to this Judy Bloom, have been reading Samantha Schweblin's Little Eyes, um, which is a Riverhead book. It's coming out in a few months. It's not out yet. I'm reading it in Galilee. Uh, but it is a fascinating book about kind of technology. I won't give too much away, um, but I it's it's kind of like literary horror, literary. Um, I mean, we'll see how, how horrible, like, uh, how much horror there is in the end, because I'm only about halfway through it. But I'm really loving it. I really love her work in general. I've also, something a little older is Natalia Ginsberg's canon. She's an Italian writer who's kind of having a renaissance. I'm going to read so much more of her work. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and then I read This is Pleasure by Mary Gatesgill was the other book I read recently. Tiny, um, slim book read in one sitting that's uh, very much a Me Too novel and kind of talking about the gray areas there and the complications. And because it's Mary Gatesgill, it's all couched in a really fascinating story. It's not just about the issue. So I loved that, and I think it's it's a good book to be reading um, in this moment in history. Very cool. Well, I will include, as always, listeners, links to all of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to Superfudge if you do need a little pick-me-up in this crazy news cycle, and links to Caroline's books, Local Girls, and We Wish You Yay. Luck, which is out very recently now. Um, I hope everybody goes ahead and checks those out. Caroline, it's been so much fun having you on the show, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, this has been so lovely. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. 
In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR podcast.